Hi, and welcome to the MXRS podcast, sharing the story behind the stories. This week's podcast is hosted by Shandra Crudup, Panchen Cox D. Giovanni, and Mark R. Edwards. Today's guest is Lawrence Minbui Davis, the editor-in-chief of the Asian American Literary Review. The Asian American Literary Review is a space for writers who consider the designation Asian American a fruitful starting point for artistic vision and community. In the fall of 2013, the AALR launched its Mixed Race Initiative, which includes a special issue of their magazine and a synchronous teaching program with over 75 classrooms in nine countries. Today's podcast focuses on the stories behind the story of Lawrence and the Mixed Race Initiative. I have is what is your mixed root story and I would start with your name because I imagine when people see your name they have questions yeah people uh, have, a, have a hard time uh, keeping it straight or spelling it right yeah so it, when I was a kid I actually just went by I went by Larry Davis um, or that's what that's what teachers would call me and to simplify things. But um, yeah, my so my full name is Lawrence Minbui Davis. Um, my parents, my mom, immigrated from Vietnam in 1966, and she came um, to attend grad school at the University of Kansas. And so my parents met my dad. My dad was also a grad student at the University of Kansas, and my parents met in Lawrence, Kansas. So hence hence my name. <laughs> And so they, they decided to hyphenate it. So my first name is Lawrence Min. Um, Min is also part of my mom's name. Her name's Min Tom. And, um, and then um, Bowie is my mom's maiden name, her family name. And then my, my father's name is Davis. Last name is Davis. I started going by my full name, I guess, probably like late high school or when I got into college. Um, and I had used shortened versions before that. But then, you know, it started, it started becoming important for me to to identify, you know, I've, I also look phenotypically, I look white. And so I've always, I always kind of like pass as white or I've always been identified as white. And so it became important for me to kind of announce that I, that I don't identify that way, that I identify as mixed or in certain spaces, I identify as Vietnamese American, other spaces as Asian American. And so having my full name was kind of one way to do that. So what was the first time you considered yourself mixed? Um, when I was two or three, my mom started sponsoring our uncles and aunts to arrive from Vietnam. So I was, this is in, in Florida and Gainesville is where I grew up. We're near the university of Florida. And so, you know, I'm attending school, uh, you know, I'm identified primarily as white people think I'm white, talk to me as white. I have a, a certain kind of racial existence that I'm not really thinking about much when, when I'm attending preschool and I'm in kindergarten and beyond. So like throughout my childhood, we are sponsoring our relatives who are coming over as refugees from Vietnam. So I have a stream of uncles and cousins, um, you know, sometimes eight, as many as eight or nine at a time. And so I think I was pretty acutely conscious at, at an early age at like four or five, six, that, um, yeah, that my experience was not the same as everyone else's and that, but that it was not the same as my cousins who are arriving as refugees either. And that, um, I was not, Vietnamese in the way that they are, 
I, you know, I would come to identify as Vietnamese, but my experience was very different from theirs, both in terms of how I looked, but also culturally and my relationship to both my parents and the ways I could move through American society in ways that they couldn't. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I think I, I think I had some sense of mixedness at a pretty early age. Lawrence, did you speak Vietnamese at home? I did not. Um, I have have a sort of ear for it, but um, and so I can understand some. But yeah, w- when my mom came over in 1966 and I was born in 1977, the environment that she felt that she was in, um, even though she was surrounded by plenty of anti-war protests on on college campus where she was a grad student. She, she felt very conscious of her difference and her Vietnamese-ness, and she was very concerned that as a child, I would face some of the kinds of discrimination that she faced. And so she wanted to shelter me from that in some sense by helping me to like, well, not assimilate because I was born here, but helping me to be as American as possible and focus on me making sure that I spoke English fluently and was concerned that if I spoke two languages, somehow... Um, I would stick out in ways that she was worried about. And so much later, she would really strongly regret that decision. But you know, that was that was how she approached it at the time. Did you have siblings? Nope. I'm, or I'm the you only, only, you're only one. Child. Yep. After me, my mom was like, that's the, that is the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing that again. <laughs> We're done. That's right. Shop is closed. This kid is already a handful. So can you talk to us a little bit about the project and where the idea came from, how it came to be, and why it matters for the public to know about? Sure. So the, so the name of the project is the Mixed Race Initiative. The, the origin story, so, so my nonprofit is Asian American Literary Review um, that, that I founded in 2010. And one of the assistant editors is, a, is an old friend of mine um, named Alicia Yopano, and she's originally from Hawaii. And we both went to grad school at San Diego State. We got in touch and worked together and been friends for a while. She also identifies as mixed. And so for years, we would have conversations about mixedness, um, but always noting that, you know, me growing up in Florida and then on the East Coast, I moved up to Maryland when I was eight. And her experience in Hawaii is just so radically different, how people think about race in those areas and how they think about mixedness. And as we had these conversations, it just struck me how important it was to be thinking about um, ideas of race across region. And so, um, and, and we'd done some stuff with the with the literary journal for, for the nonprofit with having it taught in multiple classrooms before, but we'd never thought about linking them up. And so I thought this would be a perfect opportunity if we devoted a special issue on mixed race and then use that as an opportunity to open up a conversation across the country, across classrooms, to talk about race and mixed race, putting region at the forefront. And then as, as it developed, you know, my immediate network is, is, is in Asian American studies but then, of course, I was in touch with a lot of folks who were teaching mixed race studies classes. But then I, then I started reaching out to folks in, in other fields, um, in American studies, ethnic studies, then also Native American studies, indigenous studies, African-American studies, women's studies. And it became in- increasingly apparent to me that this could be an exciting project to be thinking across regions, uh, but also across disciplines. So how Asian-American studies 
approaches race in conversation with how Native American studies approaches race, mm. in conversation with how um, a, a, an African American studies class approaches race, and how they overlap and how they differ, and what kind of conversations can emerge from that. And I've always thought that Asian American studies could profit quite a bit from thinking more deeply about mixed race and and histories of racial mixing. But I, I also think that there's there's approaches within Asian American studies that would help this emerging field of critical mixed race studies. I'm, I'm hoping that this project can be a start to getting scholars and getting teachers to think about how bringing some of the tools from critical mixed race studies into their classrooms and into their scholarship will enrich their work and then vice versa. Uh, so kind of this network that's a feeder system in both directions is what I'm hoping for. You want to talk a little bit about why you chose the race, the word race? Yeah, yeah, I do. We decided to call it Mixed Race Initiative as a way of signaling what we're up to and as a way of um, broadcasting that this is an anti-racist work. And, and that, that may seem counterintuitive if we're taking the idea of saying mixed race um, reproduces these problems of, of, of thinking of race as a biological construct, say, or race as anything but a social construct that we always need to be pressing on and questioning. And that was my idea, because coming from an Asian American studies background, in Asian American studies, the, the term Asian American, for, for many of the scholars in the field, there's this idea that Asian American itself has always been a troubling concept because it yokes together people who are fundamentally very different from each other. And saying Asian American historically referred to Chinese Americans first and foremost, mm. and then Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans, and maybe Japanese American, you know, East Asians. And so what about South Asian Americans? Mm. And what, what about Filipino Americans? And what about Southeast Asian Americans? And then, you know, more recently, um, the, you know, there's the kind of troubling fuzzy edges where we start thinking about what about Central Asians and West Asians and, and who all gets included in this grouping of Asian American and who's getting excluded or whose experiences are getting erased or when funds go to supporting Asian American ventures, who's getting that money? How's it getting distributed? Who's thinking about representation? And then basically it all breaks down. And the, the answer is that it never works very well and that people are always getting left out and excluded and nobody is happy. And it's a, <laughs> it's a bad <laughs> compromise all, all the right. time. So how do we continue using the term Asian American with any faith? Hmm. And the answer for, for many of us is we use it not as a descriptor of these people, these communities, but that we are holding up as an idea or as a critique. Like when we say Asian American, that notion is always up for criticism and continual criticism that of, of who's using it and how and what are we doing as teachers, as scholars, as community members when we say Asian American? Hmm. What are we doing when we say that? Always assuming that that term is, is, is not fixed and it's not static and it's something we need to continually press on, especially in our own usage of it. And so I always approach the Mixed Race Initiative with this idea or how I think of mixedness. Um, and you know, so I say that I'm mixed, but when I say what we're up to or what we're talking about is mixed race, my idea is that that's an idea that's meant to be in question. I'm hoping that what we're doing is destabilizing that idea always and consistently throughout the teaching practices and throughout the issue that we produced and the work that we've asked contributors to produce. And so mixed race 
as a way of destabilizing race, which I think is at the heart of anti-racist work. I mean, one is recognizing the kind of continual violence conducted in the name of race, um, but the other is is acknowledging that race itself is a construct that we need to question and we need to push on and that we continually need to ask other people around us to, to question. So, Lawrence, generally the Asian American Literary Review comes in the form of a magazine, but this mixed race issue was delivered inside of a box. Can you talk about the genesis of the box? There's a, a number of influences, but, I mean, I guess... The most, the most immediate is um, this, this, this idea that race is a construction. And so that I wanted to have a box as a construction, like mixed race is a box. This idea of making literal or concrete the, the construction of race. So this box is race, supposedly. It's something we built. And so we're going to question that building. So that's a, a reference or an allusion to the census box, of course is one of the boxes of race that we think of immediately. But then we've titled within the issue when you open it up and there's there's several there's multiple pieces inside. And so there's a couple there's three different books. There's a fold out map and there's a deck of playing cards. And so we've named each of the books. So one is Pandora's box, one is black box and one is inbox. And these are all three different kinds of boxes that we thought were would be fun ways to thematize mixed race. So mixed race is Pandora's box. So this idea of of, of mixed race and miscegenation historically as trouble or as this kind of continual <laughs> bad surprises or the end of, you know, when you have miscegenation, bad things are going to happen. This is the ruin of society in the way that Pandora's box is the ruin of mankind. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, we have black box and those are ideas that like the black box in, a, in an airplane as historical memory or what survives. And so mixed race in the bodies of mixed people as, as like supposedly as some kind of record um, of histories and of migration and movement and war and colonization and mixed people as a, as a way of um, thinking about human experience in a different way and remembering human experience or a lasting record of human experience. And then Mixed Races and Inbox is the other book. Um, and so, you know, I think another way of thinking about Mixed Race in terms of um, exchange and communication and sending and receiving ideas um, and all, but also increasingly you know even you know, part of the in- initiative that we're really interested in is digital mixed race um, what happens to ideas of race and mixing um, in in this age of social media age of new media when we have new kinds of community forming and when we have new kinds of exchanges um, what what happens to, to discourses about race. And so inbox, mixed race is inbox, and thinking in terms of technology and how that fundamentally shifts how we think about race. And I always design this with the idea that I'm going to teach this thing. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think of myself as an editor. I think of myself as a teacher. And, and I thought I want to make something that I can teach in my class. Mm-hmm. And I always envisioned if I'm going to have students – if I'm, if I'm going to make the, the, the ideal text for me or something that I think will be interesting and fun to teach, I want to have this experience where students get it and they're like, whoa, what is that? I'm excited to work with this. It's so great for an educator because 
you can't teach a teacher-centered class using this box because it forces interactivity. And, and that's the mixed experience, is this interactivity. As an instructor, you want to have your box of tricks. And you could have an entire class to talk about the symbolism of the box, yeah. which is brilliant. It does invite interactivity uh, amongst the students, but also across the classrooms. Uh, like my class right now, we're working with a class at UMass Amherst that's taught by uh, uh, a professor there named Asha Nadkarni. And she came up with the idea of let's make a mixed race glossary where the students in our two classes will trace some of the terms for mixedness across the issue, and then we'll go out and do, they'll do this extra research. What are the word origins? Where has it been used? How has it evolved over time? And then we'll look at how it's treated in the issue itself. And I'm working with another class with a professor by the name of Alexandrina Agloro. Our classes are going to work together. We're going to, we're going to do a Skype session and, and have our classes inter interact directly, and then we're going to do a kind of Twitter session where we're going to tweet at each other a discussion about some of the pieces in the issue. Um, so, yeah, the, I like that, that it opens up possibilities of working across classrooms in really exciting ways. So you talked a lot about the visual component, and so I'd like you to speak a little more about the idea around the deck of cards that are within the box. The, the inspiration for the cards, I attended uh, Natasha Trethewey's inaugural reading. She, she's our current U.S. Poet Laureate. She gave a reading at the Library of Congress and she read, she actually read the po a poem that we've included in the, in the box with a response to it. She also read another poem about uh, Costa paintings. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard of them vaguely before, but I hadn't um, spent much time thinking about it. And so she actually, so she has a poem about Costa paintings. So there, there are these paintings that visually categorize race and mixtures of race right. with the idea that, okay, so here is one half and here is one quarter and here is one eighth. And by introducing enough proper Spanish blood at the time, you could um, purify people and kind of breed the native out of people and make them properly Spanish again. And so the, the, these paintings were kind of visual categorization for that. And, and I found this, um, you know, absurd and horrifying and fascinating at the same time. And so I was thinking, like, where else have we tried to do this? I mean, and th that, that idea reflects uh, across so many ways we try and categorize race, but especially visually. And I got to thinking about how in popular culture, across multiple cultures, we've tried to do this. And so I thought about the cards as a way to tackle that, that kind of pervasive mandate to we need to enforce visually upon people that this is, that this is how race works. And this is, these are the taxonomies. And these, these are the hierarchies, you know, visually, we need to, to kind of code superiority. Mm -hmm. And so um, the idea of the cards is we have a standard deck of playing cards. We want them to be functional as a deck of playing cards. Um, but so on the faces where you would normally have, you know, Jack, Queen, King, we have images um, of popular representations of, of mixed race from all over. And on the flip sides, on the backs, 
rather than just like the pattern that you have on a standard card, we just have straight text. So from a distance, they all look the same because they're just text. But the text is something related, sometimes directly, sometimes kind of more obliquely, to the image on the other side that does some kind of work to help us think about the logic of, or the illogic of that image. So either contextualizing it or in some cases explaining it, but always trying to undermine it, parody it, or point out the kind of the absurdity of what that image is trying to do. Mm. Um, and then doing it as a deck of cards because it gives us these opportunities to think about race as, 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 a, as this, kind of, this kind of grand game, um, but to play around with things. And also to put all of these separate visual logics together and see them as similar, but kind of functioning in different ways at different time periods in different regions. And like one of the immediate things that came to me is this idea of asking students or asking anybody who's looking at these to play the game of like, make a poker hand out of them, make, make a, since there's no Jack Queen King based on the pictures and the histories that they contain, make like a three of a kind or a pair. So what would pair with um, say an image of a of a hip hop video vixen, um, whose kind of mixedness is sexualized in certain ways. If we reach across histories or outside of U.S. space or outside of you know 1990s 2000 era phenomenon, where else can we find something that pairs with this that uses a similar kind of logic to think about race? Mm. And I think that that's a kind of fascinating exercise. I like, and I, it's very, very important to me. And I'd gotten, I, and I I'd have had questions about this: is what does it mean to take those often extremely offensive and painful images and reproduce them? Mm. And I think the the important thing is is that these images are out there and they circulate. And so reproducing them is kind of bringing to the surface what is there fundamentally is there and out there and findable and not just findable that we're bombarded with in some form or another, but. That, that you cannot see these in these instances and what we're doing. You cannot consume these images uncritically because they are always paired with text that works against them, uh, that, that undermines their logic. I mean, I see the text as um, sometimes more directly than others as, as anti-racist work. This is the writing that we do that says these visual representations are not who we are. They do not encompass our existences. They do not speak for us, and they shouldn't speak about us. They're there, but we can do the work of speaking back against them, and we can pass it along. Um, we can ask other people to question the, the, the expectations and the ideas of these representations. My question is, how do we make this work accessible to the very people that need the benefits of anti-racist and, and anti-classist. How do we make this accessible to those folks? We as cultural producers working in, in many cases, working in the academy, um, working in as students of university level classrooms or teaching in university level classrooms, we are reaching a small fraction of the population, and in many cases, not necessarily the people who need it most, or at least we are not reaching many of the people who need it most. We are reaching the people who have the privilege to be in college classrooms and have a, have a tremendous amount of money and resources to, to put themselves in that position. And so, 
Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. It's something that, um, you know, I think it behooves us to keep thinking about. I, I envision this project as the feeder system. And so I can, I feel like one, starting with teachers and asking them to shift their pedagogy, mm-hmm. asking them to think about what they're doing when they're teaching race, giving them more tools and more resources helps them because I know how beleaguered teachers can be, mm-hmm. um, how hard it is to make a living and make a life in this country as a teacher. And so recognizing them as people who have limited time on their hands in many cases or stretch very thin and giving them free resources and saying, here, we want to help. And that helps them and that helps their students, and it creates this system where they can help each other, and they can continually help new waves of students coming in. And then the students themselves, with any luck, are leaving the classrooms um, thinking more deeply and feeling more deeply than they have when they walked in. And we're hoping that that radiates outward to um, people who are not in those college classrooms. And I know of some folks that are, are planning to do some kind of community projects that I'm hoping we can archive and that we can hold up as models for future work and that we can encourage people to conduct. On the other hand, I think what's more important is having folks from different organizations or who have different kind of projects underway to sit down and have a conversation together and put access right at the top of the list and put communities right at the top of the list. How do we make it accessible to people? How do we get outside of this very limited circuit of you know, high-end scholars that are headlining this event or, or artists. Mm. Um, how do we how do we make work that speaks to people who may not make it into a college classroom at any point in their lives or would not be interested in um, attending a college classroom? Uh, and I, I think that that's it's a vital conversation that, that we need to have together um, and in and a, and a matter not of just saying, like, here's what we're doing, can you help me with this, but, like, what should we be doing together? Be critical about the work and and disbursement of the work. Yeah. So how do we take very dry material and <laughs> do a digestible story? Most people have a chance to sit down and start saying what brought them there yeah. to do the research. That's revelatory, and that's what gets people excited. I agree. And I think that impulse is one we always have to keep in front of our minds that whatever the work that we're doing and how important the theory, how important the scholarship and research that's being conducted, that it has to be accessible to a broader public or it only does so much good. You know, this is, which is part of the reason why I got into nonprofit work in the first place. You know, I'm a PhD student. I've been a PhD student for a long time and I was looking at my work and I was, you know, working on my dissertation and I was thinking to myself, you know, I think I'm doing important work and I think all of 10 people are going to read it. And I have these ideas to do other stuff that I think would reach a lot more people and could be a lot more meaningful and impactful, um, which is not to say scholarly work isn't impactful, but it's, it needs to think about what it's, what it's up to and who it's serving and who it's reaching all the time. A part of this project that I haven't talked about at all, actually, that, that speaks directly to this question, which is throughout the life of this project, I've conducted internships at the University of Maryland with Maryland students who have been on board doing everything with this project um, from top to bottom. And I've tried to give them as much responsibility as possible. Um, And they were making major decisions about what would be included in this issue. We acknowledge and value the perspective of young people. 
And there was some pushback on that. There's people that got really pissed at me. They're like, I'm a, I'm a tenured professor with, you know, five books. I'm not going to have my proposal weighed by a 19 year old kid who hasn't read anything and, you know, hasn't thought very much about race. And I think that there's, well, I think that's a great question. (laughs) A, why not? And B, why are you so mad about it? Let's talk a little bit about this. (laughs) Where does that, that hesitance come from? Well, speaking of constructs. I agree. And so I, I, I asked the students that question. I said, this is what people are, or sometimes they got it directly. Sometimes they were the ones fielding those emails. And we talked about it. I was like, you know, how do you feel about this? And where do you think it's coming from? Like, you know, we can easily just say, ah, it's ageism or, you know, it's this hierarchy and you got to pay your dues. Or we can try and step back and understand it and not take it personally um, and, and try and make sense of it and then figure out how to work around it. We're not changing our position. You still have that authority and that responsibility of making the decisions what this project is ultimately going to look look like. But we got to think about why people are upset about it. And I think that was a good process for them. And I think it was a good process for the larger project to kind of try and come to terms with some of that resistance. And I, I agree in some sense that these students have a tremendous responsibility to read and to learn more. But I am, was always very loath to say just because they're young and just because they haven't read as much and experienced as much as some of us who are getting a little older now, <laughs> um, doesn't mean that their, their perspectives aren't extremely valuable. Mixed Root Stories wants to thank Lawrence Minbui Davis for being our first guest. We also want to express our gratitude to Rachel and Tu, also known as the singer and the songwriter who created our wonderful jingle. Thanks also to John Crump and Terry LaFleche of TightlyCurly.com for helping with our website, and Benjamin and Tamika at Zerflin.com for designing our logo, which we'll be unveiling in a couple of weeks. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, we'd appreciate a review. Our mission at Mixed Root Stories is to celebrate and strengthen diverse communities through the power of sharing stories, and we'd love to hear and share your story. Please visit the Promote Your Story link at www.mixedrootstories.org to tell us about you. We can't wait to hear your story.